You are listening to the Catholic Exchange Podcast. Hello and welcome to this very special edition of the Catholic Exchange Podcast. I'm here with Jeannie Ewing, a popular CE author. Many of you have read her articles. She also has just published a book, Navigating Deep Waters, a Reflection and Meditations for Caregivers. So it's our pleasure to have Jeannie on. Jeannie, welcome. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure as always. As I said, uh, you're an author, not only a Catholic Exchange and your own personal blog. You just put out a book, which how you have the time to do that is beyond me, but good work. <laughs> uh, tell us a oh, of course. Uh, tell us a little bit about your new book, Navigating Deep Waters. Uh, just give our listeners an idea of what the book entails. Well, it was um I don't know exactly what you want to know, but it was born from really an inspiration from the Holy Spirit. I was, it was an ordinary day. I was getting ready for bed. I went upstairs to read and very unrelated on an unrelated topic. Um, and while I was in bed reading, it was like, it, it sounds so corny, but it happened to me where it was like this lightning bolt struck me. And it was like, the Holy Spirit was like, you need to write this down right now. So I was like, okay. <laughs> so I got my pen and paper out and um, I just wrote and I wasn't sure what I was writing. And when I looked at it when I was done, it looked just like chapter titles to a book. So I just kind of tucked it away in my journal, prayed about it for a while, talked about it with actually my co-author. She's um, She used to be my life coach and now she's kind of my mentor and colleague, I would say. And mm-hmm. so anyway, we talked about it and prayed about it for a few months. And then I don't know what happened. It was one weekend that I, on a rare occasion when my husband and I were able to get away and I just wrote the whole thing that weekend. It just, it just came to me. The, the purpose I knew ahead of time was to be something that would help caregivers specifically to okay. kind of figure out where they were in their journey of understanding the mess that they were in and trying to make meaning out of it and find peace. So that's mm. the whole purpose of the book. It's very, the, sh- the chapters are very short. There are reflection questions and then some lined pages for journaling, and there's a short prayer, too, at the end of each chapter. So, Okay, and this is specifically for caregivers, like you said. Uh, did <laughs> you find that there was a lack of resources for caregivers, especially from the Catholic side? There, are, there were for me. I mean, when okay. I became a caregiver for Sarah specifically, mm-hmm. I couldn't find much of anything. And so that's kind of the reason why my co-author Eileen and I were interested in coming up with our own resources because we couldn't really find anything to help us. So Wonderful. And uh, can you explain a little bit about Sarah? I know some folks may have read about her and I followed her story for a long time now, uh, but she has a Hurt syndrome, if I recall correctly. It's Apert syndrome. It's a rare, yeah, yeah. It's a rare craniofacial condition. Um, It's kind of it was described to us as a genetic fluke. So there's nobody in my family, nobody in Ben's family that has it or has any kind of carries a gene for it. She's hers was the first mutation. So basically, uh, it's very characteristic visibly, especially in the medical community. There are just certain traits that are pretty obvious. There's kind of buggy eyes. They have a very wide forehead, misshapen head, what they call syndactyly, which are fused fingers and toes. They usually have other accompanying problems with other bodily systems, but Sarah so far doesn't have a lot of that, thankfully. So it's 
it's basically, they call it a form of craniosynostosis, which means one or more plates in their head is fused together prematurely. So. I see. Okay. And how old is Sarah now, actually? Um, she'll be two in a couple weeks. Oh, wonderful. Well, uh, as many of us who subscribe to your blog, we see the pictures of both your darling daughters. They both look always happy. I'm sure that's a great photo oh, mostly. Um, <laughs> no, pictures are deceptive. Trust me. Very <laughs> I would say Sarah, it, she's a very naturally joyful little girl. Even now, like today, she has this nasty upper respiratory infection that just kind of sprouted overnight, I would say. And she's still her cheerful little self, but Felicity, she is kind of a mini me. So she's very melancholic and very choleric. She's a very brooding, moody kind of kid. I never know what I'm going to get, but she's also a very deep thinker and she has a great imagination, but she is very introverted and she's kind of my difficult kid. She's not happy most of the time. And so I think part of the reason we butt heads is because I'm a lot like her. So I can see myself in her and therein lies the conflict, I suppose. My parents would say the same thing about me, so I fully understand that. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly. Are and, you uh, a melancholic you... too? Oh, very. I think uh very melancholic and I certainly get that from my mom's Irish side of the family. So mm-hmm. we that definitely gets us into conflicts where they're just like, why are you not laughing about this? And I'm going, oh, yes. I don't feel like yeah. it. <laughs> That's my family, too. Actually, my family is more, well, my mom has more of the Celtic background. She's Irish and a little bit of Scottish. And my dad is primarily German and Hungarian. So, But both okay. of them have this very stoic temperament. I don't know. But then Ben comes from a very Scottish family. They're like almost 100% Scottish. And so we actually had a Scottish wedding when we got married. It was really cool. He wore his kilt, wow. his family crest and everything like that. So he gets kind of his uh, temper, I guess, from his Scottish roots, I would say. Well, and that's awesome. You let him wear a kilt. I can't tell you how many of my guy friends have wanted to wear a kilt to their wedding and it was immediately shot down. So you know, that... it, I don't know how it, I think if at first I did feel that way. I was like, no way that's not going to happen. But as we talked about it, it just really fit. And actually people still talk about our wedding to this day. Cause we have, we had Highland dancers at our wedding oh, and, yeah. um, we had, I mean, it was just, it was, we had a lot of the rich traditions from our culture. So it just made it a lot more meaningful. Wonderful. That is very exciting. And it'll bring us back to the, some of the topics I want to cover. You Sorry. identify, oh, no, no, I do this all the time. That's what this was for. But uh, regarding, uh, you call yourself a grief coach, I see, and you're, you write a lot of articles on dealing with grief, especially from the point of St. John of the Cross. Can you tell us a little bit about how you started writing that subject and how you really found yourself to the vocation as a grief coach? Huh. Well, that's that's a, that'll have a long answer. That's um, fine. I would say that it was probably five years ago now. I was introduced to St. John of the Cross by my former, former spiritual director and mm-hmm. I had heard of him, of course, as a saint, but I was not familiar with his spirituality. 
So I, my spiritual director recommended that I get his collected works, which I did. And now this is before I had children. So I had plenty of time to read and meditate and reflect on all of these principles and everything, which I did. And it took me about a year to read the whole collected works and to kind of um, ponder it and kind of figure out, I don't know, to decipher what how, the application for my life. Okay. And I journaled about it all along the way. And it just was his spirituality was a huge influence in helping me on my particular spiritual path. So it was just kind of like an oasis in the desert. It just explained so many things that I could not pinpoint or articulate until that point when I was familiar with his spirituality. So I don't know how to explain it, but I just kind of incorporated that into my mm -hmm. journey and my prayer life. And then several years later, so here we are a couple years ago, is when I really started getting into the blogging. And I would say it's almost, it wasn't even a new vocation. It was something that I felt a call to decades ago. It just never came to fruition because it wasn't the right time. So mm -hmm. as far as working with people in their grief, that is something I kind of touch base on my new book that Sophia Institute just took on. So I'm really excited Wonderful. about that. That one is called From Grief to Grace, and that one I talk more about my personal experiences with different types of grief and how I've worked through them, processed them. Um, I don't know. It's That's something that I think explains a little bit more why I started working in grief recovery. Does that make sense? Oh, it certainly does, and that's exciting to hear about your new book with Sophie Institute Press. Even though I work in the office, I didn't hear that news, so congratulations. Oh, That's exciting. Thank you. <laughs> uh, tell us a little bit more then about From Grief to Grace and the pro and how that process is going. What's the book generally about? Well, okay, so From Grief to Grace is there, the first chapter basically talks about the differences between grief and depression and how some of those characters can overlap. And also... I go into talking about kind of the cultural stigma mm -hmm. of expressing grief and being, I think, honest and authentic about it, about our experiences with sorrow and just the raw pain. Mm. And then there are the next chapter I talk about my personal experiences with understanding mental illness, addiction, death, different kinds of death. And then um, the disease that my daughter has, the rare condition that she has. So I talk about how grief manifests itself in different ways and what it looked like for me. And after which is what I'm writing now, is it takes a specific saint's spirituality, a point of their spirituality, I should say. And then I apply that to grieving and processing emotionally and virtually processing one's grief. So I already obviously talked about St. John of the Cross and the Dark Night of the Soul, and then I am talking about holy indifference with St. Ignatius of Loyola, mm -hmm. and then I'm going to start talking about abandon the concept of abandonment, and that doesn't have a specific saint, but there are some really good spiritual writers that I've read 
that I'm going to take some of their points and go over that. And then there's humility and there are other points too. Divine mercy is part of that. And so there's some kind of, there's some mystical weavings, I would say, in the book itself. The final two chapters will talk about how a person can find their calling Mm -hmm. in the midst of the pain and how to find the meaning and purpose to help other people in their suffering. Wonderful. I'm really excited to hear about that. That is going to be very helpful for a lot of people. I can already tell. And uh, I say that not only as someone who tries to read everything we put out, but also, as you know, Jeannie, and I think many of our listeners are aware, I've written quite a bit about the struggles of depression and what it is to have mental illness as both a Catholic and as a person living in modern society. And there's surprisingly few resources. The only one really until relatively recently was Benedict Rochelle's Arise from the Darkness. Outside of that, I hadn't found many resources. And has that been your experience as well? I would agree with okay. that. Absolutely. Yeah, it's Um, you know, growing up in my home, I my my brother is the person I mainly talk about. He has bipolar disorder and obsessive compulsive disorder. But we have bipolar and um major depressive disorder all peppered throughout my family. And I agree with you. That was something that was really lacking for my family. I mean, we had the pastoral support. Good, absolutely. Good. Uh, but as far as something, and of course there were the secular, you know, uh, count, group counseling or individual counseling type thing. But as far as helping someone or helping our family really unravel the mystery, the spiritual mystery of having this particular type of invisible affliction, I would say that was not available. And so that's why I really feel that the Lord has placed these certain saints and these certain principles of their spirituality in my path. And then now it's kind of coming together in this collected, um, you know, work that I'm working on that's just hopefully will be kind of a comprehensive understanding for people that are just not sure where they are and not sure what to do with it. Very good. And it's good that those resources are out there. Also, I want to point out any listeners who might have more questions. Uh, Sophia Institute Press, about a year and a half, two years ago, we put out a, the Catholic Guide to Depression, which surprised many people at how well it was received and how needed it was. So I'm glad you're also working in this to dim and, to help us see that need and also address it. And uh, Great. Regarding, you mentioned uh, you bring in holy indifference. Can you give us a small overview of what that is? Huh. Yeah, that's tough. <laughs> I'm sure. Well, I would say... <laughs> For me, too, coming from my background, my temperament, because I'm such an ambitious person mm-hmm. and I've never been indifferent about anything. I've always been very opinionated. And growing up, I was always told that I was too bossy or <laughs> I had this fiery spirit and I never knew what to do with it as a kid, you know. And my parents, being very introverted and very non confrontational people, they just were blown away by my go getter kind of like, I don't know, kind of bulldozing personality at times. And of course, that's tempered. It's been tempered a little bit since I've had some life experiences that have taught me how to balance that. So holy indifference has been something that's really difficult for even me to grasp Mm. because I don't understand how you can be neither hot nor cold. To me, that's being lukewarm. But that's not what it means. Um, From what I understand, and I'm just coming from my own background and my own experience, But from what I understand, holy indifference is about detachment. Mm -hmm. That's really a better word, I guess, that makes more sense to me in my mind. So it's, 
it's less about being apathetic or mediocre, and it's more about being detached from anything, including relationships, including interior or spiritual, uh, like ambitions or goals or dreams, anything that's not leading you closer to God. And certainly, you know, most of us can think of obvious examples like material possessions, but there are a lot of sneakier attachments that I found that I personally have. And that, especially before I lost, I used to be a high school counselor, but then I lost my job in 2009. And it wasn't until that happened that I realized my own interior attachments that I would, I would even be so bold as to say were a form of vanity and a form of idolatry even because I was so attached to the fact that I had this advanced degree and I graduated summa cum laude and I had all these accolades and um, <clears throat> people were really constantly praising me and giving me, I, I got a lot of, of awards in college, all these things. And so when I lost this career that I had built for so many years, I didn't know who I was. And I really, I realized looking in retrospect that God wanted me to get to that place. It was necessary for me to be stripped completely of what I had been pursuing on my own in order to be empty so that God could show me how he wanted to fulfill his purpose and plan in my life, which of course was far greater than what I had planned myself. So that's how I understand holy indifference. It's a form of spiritual and uh, temporal detachment is what I would say. What you were mentioning about like sometimes things happening in our lives, you've written about this before, how sometimes the dry moments or just the moments that are hectic and we think are unbearable really do lead us to greater knowledge of what God's providence has in store for us. Uh, can you talk just a few minutes on that subject? <laughs> well, I think that's the thing that I, I still have to revisit when it comes to particularly St. John of the Cross is I was just re-reading re, re, uh, his sketch of Mount Carmel, the ascent to Mount Carmel, mm -hmm. which is the his description of the active night of the soul, which is kind of the precursor to the dark night. Okay. So anyway, I'm looking at and reading how he says to come to a way that you know, you must go by a way that you know not. I'm like, oh, I have to think about that. So, you know, it's it's really about where we think we are in our human, our finite way of thinking. It's almost always spiritually the opposite. It's so it's the it's like I think of my own life and how contrary things are spiritually what's happening to me to what I'm thinking is happening what I'm cognizant of and so when I think that I'm in a place where God has abandoned or forsaken me or I don't hear His voice or I don't feel any consolations or anything that's precisely when He's closest to me and that's true for all of us which is just so hard for us to really believe. I think because it goes against our human nature. Mm. So, regarding the the dark night of the soul, it's a concept I think you and I are pretty familiar with. Can you go explain briefly to our listeners what that might be. Okay, I'll try. There, like I said, there are two types of the dark night that Saint John of the Cross talks about. The first is the active night, and that's where we participate in mortifying our senses. And, oh, and this is actually really pertinent to being in Lent during Lent, because that's what we do, obviously, every year at least. But St. John of the Cross is talking about this purgation of the body, the mind, and the soul. Mm -hmm. So we have to essentially be stripped of our comforts, our worldly pleasures, but 
really our intellect and i think that's why sometimes this kind of spirituality is difficult for very intellectual people mm -hmm. because you have to become intellectually empty which for scholars especially i have found especially when i was getting my master's degree that's really contrary to the whole culture of academia you know it's not that's not what they're looking for they're looking for something that's going to i think i hate to say this but that's the impression i get is to kind of puff up their pride mm -hmm. so saint john of the cross mentions that in the active night that is where we participate we are saying yes to the recognition that we need to become empty become poor in spirit the passive night is also actually the more critical component and that's what god does to us and this is the part where i think a lot of us don't really get it or believe it or we ha we struggle to understand mm -hmm. because this is where God may afflict us and we feel like we're being punished or we feel this wound in our heart and we don't we can't possibly fathom how this could be a form of love because it seems again so contrary to what we understand or believe love to be and so this passive night is very much a refinement of the soul and this is where god deepens that darkness in a spiritual manner so once we have already been stripped of the sensory consolations and pleasures and signs and comforts the worldly things then the lord really um, takes us to that next step where he's personally afflicting us mm. but it's for that refinement of soul so that we can come to understand and engage in this unitive love which is ultimately what we were all created to be and participate in and uh that uh, as you said this is great reflections for the lenten season you'll have an article coming out to catholic exchange this week about how to really do lint with your daughter uh with young children your with your two young daughters do you have any insight for a lot of the moms who are listening right now about how you can really make lint holy for you and the children See, this is where, I, like I said, I was a high school counselor, mm -hmm. so I still struggle with the little kids. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know how to simplify all this stuff. So I still kind of am working my way to understand how, what that looks like for our daughters. Now, of course, Sarah's only two, so she basically does a lot of listening instead of active participation with all of our Lenten practices. Something that Ben and I started during Advent, and we've continued, and we're actually kind of adding on now for Lent, is we started saying a decade of the rosary with Felicity every night. Well, now we're doing two decades every night. So she gets to pick which mysteries that she wants to reflect on, reflect as far as a four-year-old can do. Mm -hmm. But, you know, she surprised me because there are a lot of I don't know, a lot of comments she's made or questions she's asked me about, well, why did Jesus have a crown of thorns? And so it really is interesting how those are perfect for someone like me because now I know, okay, I know what to explain to her and take to the next level. So that's that's something that we've done spiritually with Felicity as a family. She also has a little offering box that says my offering to Jesus. So this is, I think this is appropriate for little kids. So she, every time she does something and act like a sacrificial act or something that's loving, that's really hard for her to do, we will acknowledge that and praise her and give her some money to put in this little offering basket. And then at the end of Lent, it will go to a priest who is from our parish that is a missionary priest in Bangladesh. Wow. And so it will go to his missions. And so she's really proud of this little basket. She says, Mommy, I just got a dollar 
for my basket for Father Bob. So that's something um, I think that can be adapted to whatever situation, whatever parish or whatever uh, charity that a parent would like to have their children contribute to for Lent. So those are two things that we do that we're doing now as far as prayer and almsgiving. So penance is a little tougher for my kids because they're little. Mm -hmm. They're not at the age of reason. So I can't really do a whole lot with that. So. <laughs> and unfortunately, I'll just break it to everyone out there. Penance is hard no matter what age you're at. So yes, whatever is. age you're going through, it's difficult to figure out. So right now we're doing it with your children. There's an offertory box for Felicity, your oldest daughter. And you guys started that in Advent? We started the Deck of the oh, Rosary okay. in Advent. Yep. The offertory box we started for Lent, and actually it was, I can't take credit for it, it was her preschool teacher's idea, and I thought, this is genius, because I'm so clueless when it comes to preschoolers and toddlers, I'm just like, I don't know what to say. <laughs> so, I mean, obviously, I'm sure people that read what I write can understand that, that I'm very much a deep thinker, and I'm very analytical, so it's so hard for me. But it's also a gift. It's a blessing that I have these little children to remind me that I need to simplify. I need to be small and little like they are. So. Oh, great. And especially during Holy Week, I know some parents have a challenge in explaining what's going on during Holy Week with the procession, with the crucifix. Do you find that to be a challenge at all? Well, you know, Felicity, when she was about two... She pointed to crucifixes often, whether we were at church or somebody's house or at our house, and she would say, Jesus, Jesus, cross. And there was something about the way she said it that made me think she probably grasped it more deeply than I could give her credit for mm. at that age. At her age now, of course, she's old enough to articulate simple, basic questions. And we've talked not specifically during Holy Week, but this is more just throughout the year. We've talked about the different mysteries of the rosary, and she is really interested in why Jesus died on the cross. And now that she kind of knows the basics, which I hate to oversimplify this, but like I said, she's four. All right. So she'll she'll wake up in the morning sometimes and she'll say, Mommy, Jesus died on the cross for me. And she's so happy about it. And then she'll say, and he's going to help me to get to heaven. And he's going to help me to do good things today. And I'll say, that's right. So, I mean, she gets that part okay. about it. Of course, all the other details, I don't think she does. But I think because she's a child, if, as we keep adding the complexity of the faith, I don't see why she wouldn't, why it wouldn't be incorporated into her worldview because she already, so the concept of God and eternity is so easy for her to accept. Now, I'm not saying, you know, she'll never get to an age where she'll say, well, wait a minute, I don't really know if I believe all this stuff, but you know, I'm a crazy Catholic too. Both my husband and I are. And so we, we never knew life without Catholic traditions and going to mass and all of the ritual. We never knew anything other than that. But we both had to come to a point when we were probably, I was in high school, he was in college, where we had to say, you know what? I don't know. Is this faith my faith or my parents' faith? Mm -hmm. And we had to come to a place where we accepted it as our own. And we fully expect that our children will have to go through that. But because we've been through it and the way that our parents handled it, 
we're ready and willing to engage in those questions, those really difficult questions like, well, how do I know God really exists? Or how do, why do we have, why do we pray to Mary? Or why do we have to go to confession? Or I don't understand this and that, you know, to us, that's not a big deal. We can, we can tackle that stuff. Oh, good. It's interesting to have a cradle Catholics and Catholic exchange. As you've probably gathered, most of us are converts who work here. Uh, I didn't know that. I was listening to your first podcast and I was like, I didn't know that. I just, I don't know why. I just wouldn't have guessed it. But you know, it's so amazing because it's very humbling for me as a, a cradle Catholic to, most of our friends are converts because we live in a very Mennonite area. Right. And um, how, just how quickly converts seem to advance that I'm just like, wow, I'm so blown away by this. This is very humbling. So I wouldn't have guessed that, but doesn't surprise me. <laughs> oh yeah, many of us are. And I, what I learned it. Uh, as an adult, someone who came to the Catholic Church as an adult is, as you said, there's a moment in almost every Catholic's life where they kind of have that conversion experience, whether they grew up with it. I mean, I know people who grew up where their father was a deacon and everything. They still have that experience around usually end of high school, beginning of college where they go, yes, but this is my faith now and I have to take ownership of it and run with it. And so that's what I always right. tell people. There's Most conversions are eerily similar in that it's like at some point we realize this is mine and I have to be part of this Catholic Church now and move on. Yes. Did you mention that you go to a, that you go to a Melkite church? I do. Is that right? Yes, yes, I'm tech. That's interesting. Yes, I'm technically Latin right. That's what I was confirmed in at a Newman Center at the University of Oregon at uh, 2004. Oh my gosh, 11 years. My goodness, but <laughs> I hear you. Uh, I'm still learning, but I was converted in that, but I found the Eastern right almost immediately. It started attending pretty regularly and my regular parish here in Manchester is at a Melkite parish. Uh, for okay. many reasons, I haven't made the switch over. I'm still Latin right. It's still still have to answer to the Bishop of Manchester. But at the end of the day, it's most of my identification is with the East, and it is a That's rich treasure. There's a I never heard of the Melkite Church, I guess whatever you call it, um, until I was in a young adult Bible study a few years ago, and there was a really young guy. He was barely out of high school. And he said that he went to a Melkite church. And I said, what's that? See, this is where my cradle Catholicism's like, huh? Never heard of that before, you know? So this was only a few years ago. And, I mean, he explained a little bit about it. But, we, like I said, I live in a very Mennonite area, mm -hmm. Amish and Mennonite. So it's like our Catholic church is in the other town, let alone having the option of all these different rites. <laughs> so he was – what I gathered, though, is it's very traditional. Very traditional. Oh. Yes, it uh, comes. The Melkite rite comes from uh, what's now Syria and Lebanon mostly, and it's an outcrop from the from the Syria, the Greek Orthodox Syrians and the Lebanese. So they keep very a lot of their traditions. Actually, they hold to them very, very closely. They still say the liturgy, Saint John Chrysostom. They still go through Great Lent, which is something I can barely do. I it, that's giving up all animal products for Lent. I oh yes. I fail at yes. that, but <laughs> just bluntly. And yeah, all incense smells, bells, and big beards. Lots of beards. <laughs> yes. See, Ben is part of the Christian pipe smokers yes. community. And he told me there are a lot of people, a lot of guys specifically on there, that are part of the Eastern Rite. And they were talking about that. He's like, do you realize how strict their Lent is? And I, I mean, we were just talking about this the other day, and I'm like, wow. But... Hey, you know, I think that's a good thing. You know, if you, I understand if you can't do all animal products, especially being an American. Mm -hmm. However, it's a good 
goal to for which to strive, yeah. <laughs> you know? Oh, it, it it's a good thing, and it's nice to have. What I always say is that the church is always going to ask a lot of us, but it's also making room for us to be human. And that is exactly yes. what you see. They tell us, you know, abstain from all animal products for this period of Lent. If you can't talk to your priest, if you can't do it, there's other ways they can accommodate and help you. So it's not a, yeah. never a stumbling block for me. Like I tried to do it once and I'd say day 20, I was like, all right, if I don't eat some cheese, I'm going to kill someone. I'm being it right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's my family. That's totally my family. So it's a, it's a beautiful ride and there's when you see a Eastern Rite Church in a town that's very Western, there's kind of a merging of cultures that happens, such as our priest will quote St. John of the Cross or St. Augustine, while he's very much following the tradition of his Lebanese family. And it's lovely to see, really. And we don't have that here at all. Mm-hmm. It's very much like white people central. <laughs> so is most of Manchester. I don't know where the where these folks come from, tell you the truth, but whatever. And you say you're mostly in a Mennonite area. Yes. Okay, and do you find, like, with explaining to your children or, like, really being the Catholic in an area that's very much non-Catholic can have its own challenges? It does, but, you know, because Sarah is different, here's the silver lining. Mm-hmm. Flitty doesn't think a whole lot about people that look different from us. So we see an Amish buggy going by, or we see a Mennonite lady with her full garb at, you know, the grocery store occasionally we will see a Muslim, which is very unusual in my area, uh, but that doesn't, it doesn't phase her at all. She just, she'll just, you know, she might ask me a question later, but like, well, why do they, why do they have that dress on or why do they have that thing on their head or whatever? And we'll talk about it. But for the most part, you know, she, I don't know. She just, she knows that people are people. That's the way I was raised too. Very good. That people are people. So. Very good. And I think because I grew up in a city, a fairly large city, at least as big as you can get in Indiana, um, it was pretty diverse, actually. And so I went to school with a lot of people who were East Indian and different religions, Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist. Um, One of my best friends was Vietnamese. She was first generation. And a lot of us also went to church together, too. You know, we had all these cultures that we all went to mass together. It didn't matter if they were from Mexico or Haiti or Vietnam or the Philippines or whatever. So that's kind of the way that Ben and I intend to raise our girls. Differences are beautiful. That's how God made us. Absolutely. Uh, one Orthodox priest likes to say that we're all flowers in God's garden, which is something I try to remember, yes. especially with my own prejudices. So it's very mm-hmm. good bring your children that they kind of learn to accept differences. Is there ever any type of challenge, though, as you and Ben are going through and meeting so many people who are not Catholic? How do you find yourself that you're evangelizing every day? It's funny because now that we have Sarah, it's almost, it's a very natural type of evangelization Mm -hmm. because she's such a conversation starter. And, you know, we certainly have gotten some people who give us these ghastly stares, like these grimaces in public. It's really rude and inappropriate. Yeah. But for the most part, people are, you know, but for the most part, people are very open where we live as far as asking questions or just being very kind. And there's just a very natural segue into talking about our faith. And honestly, I have to tell you, a lot of my friends, because I said, you know, we live in a very non-Catholic area. Mm -hmm. 
are surprised to learn that I'm Catholic because we might have several conversations about God and, um, you know, and, um, you know, it takes a few times before they'll say, oh, my gosh, I didn't know that you were Catholic. You're as Christian as we are. You know what I'm saying? So it makes for um, a very natural type of evangelization mm-hmm. where we live to have a daughter with something so rare that nobody else in our geographical area has what Sarah has. We have just we have hit time of where we need to be, folks. So once more, Jeannie, thank you very much. You can find Jeannie's book, Navigating Deep Waters, on Amazon. She has a forthcoming book also from Sophie Institute Press we're excited about. She's also on the blog Love Alone Creates. Jeannie, thank you so much for uh, for having yourself on here. It's been great to talk with you. Thanks a lot, Michael. I appreciate it. My pleasure. And that was once again Jeannie Ewing, one of the great Catholic Exchange contributors here. We were very pleased to have her on for the interview. You can find her new book on Amazon at Love Alone Creates, and there will also be a link on the podcast site. Thank you very much for joining us. Tune in next week when we'll have another exciting interview as well as daily podcast. God love you. Have a great day.